What's up, Faramers? Welcome to the Faram Athletic Company podcast. I'm excited on today's episode to introduce you to my younger brother, Andrew, as we discuss heart health and what it looks like from our point of view versus his point of view in our respective fields. The views and opinions expressed in today's show are strictly ours as individuals and do not represent the views or opinions of Philips or any subsidiary companies. If you like today's show, please share it with family or friends. Leave us a review. We hope you like it. And now on to today's show. What's up, Farmers? Welcome to episode number 10 of the Farm Athletic Company podcast. My guest today is my younger brother. Hey. Andrew Warner. And we are currently on vacation over in Destin, hanging out for the week. And I'm pretty excited about this conversation because, I don't know, when you grow up, you always think your sibling is a total moron. (laughs) And you pick on each other and make fun of each other your whole lives. And then you grow up and realize that your sibling is really good at what they do and they're really smart. So let's talk about your background and your story before we get into what I really want to dive into. So you went to college at the University of Southern Indiana and your bachelor's degree is in, remind Uh, me? Health services. Health services, that's correct. Yeah, basically the business end of the health field. And when you were in college... You had no idea that that's really what you wanted like. Well, no, I was a typical college student at that time that I was not among the, I don't know what you would say, the, I don't even want to say the 1%, meaning that knew what they wanted to do with the rest of their life at that time. I was just your typical college student, and all of a sudden that four years ticked by, and I was like, well, crap, I'm getting ready to graduate college, and I have a degree, and here this comes life. not what I want to do. Yeah. So, because I remember talking <clears throat> to you and you saying... Um, I think I'm going to quit. And sure. I remember I was um, I was playing professional golf at the time, and I was practicing as on the putting green in Tampa, holding my BlackBerry in one hand. <laughs> the BlackBerry. <laughs> Shh, does that date me? Yeah, right. One-handed putting, basically telling you, get your head out of your ass and go to school and graduate with something, and mm-hmm. then we'll figure it out from there. So you graduate with health services to work on the administrative side, from yep. there, you got a job at Lowe's. Yeah, I mean, well, from there, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, my buddy Jeremy got me a job at the factory he was working at because I really didn't have anything lined up at the time. And right as soon as that happened, then the 2007 recession hit. Oh, yeah. So then I was, you know, for lack of better words, kind of stuck right there. Um, then after that, it was still in the recession, but I couldn't handle working at that anymore. I mean, I did my due diligence. I cut my teeth, all that kind of stuff, and went back to work for Lowe's, my college job that I had doing delivery. Um, and then from there, it was uh, on to nursing school after well, that. Well, you moved, you moved to Florida for a hot minute. Yeah. Um, where you still work Lowe's delivery. You moved mm-hmm. back to Indiana. Um, Became a dad now, in the meantime of all that. Yep, your now wife was pregnant with my incredible niece, Ava, um, and you went back to nursing school. Yep, did that for, you know, two and a half years. It was work full-time, school full-time, 
It was um, baby full time. Baby full time. There was that was my life for two and a half years, and people were, "How do you do it?" I'm like, "Well, when you get when you got to do it, you figure out how to do it." Yep, you just do it. So, when you were in nursing school, tell me when you started working at the hospital. I started working at the hospital in I don't know August of 2010. Started doing a couple prerequisites for nursing school. In the fall of 2010, and I was working in the ICU step down as a patient care tech, making <laughs> single digits on the hour, um, you know, with a bachelor's degree, but basically kind of starting things all over again. So, right. you know, turning patients, wiping butts, all that kind of stuff. When we start diving into the cardiac area, Mm-hmm. Uh, you started out in cardiac ICU, correct? I initially started in uh, what the hospital they called it was Four West. It was ICU step down, and then I was there for just a I don't, maybe a year, and then I transferred and was working in medical ICU and cardiac ICU as a tech while finishing out my nursing degree. And the things you saw in cardiac ICU. As post-open heart patients, uh, for the majority of the, of the patients that I saw and that I dealt with in there. So, um, I mean, you're, I don't want to sit here and say you're sickest of sick because the hospital I was at did not do heart transplants, but still did open heart surgeries, did cardiac caths, um, got some pretty intricate uh, vascular ser- uh, surgeries as well, too. But by and large, the majority of the patients that were in CVICU were your post-cabbage or pre-cabbage coronary artery bypass grafting patients. You graduate school, worked in cardiac ICU for... I actually worked in medical ICU for about a year. Um, they They had wanted me to work in medical ICU, so basically you're getting... Anything and everything. You're getting your diabetic ketoacidosis patients, um, just anything that you can think of. Your post cardiac cath patients, um, head trauma potentially if they didn't have room in the surgical trauma unit. Um, again, medical ICU. It's pretty much a broad gamut of anything that you could get, but the patient was obviously critically ill and needed to be in a higher level of care. So how did you end up in cardiac cath? Um, I just was ready to make a move. I'd had enough of the medical ICU. Um, I mean, you got all your train wreck patients, don't get me wrong. Um, But with today's medical, what's going on in the hospitals and everything, it's just every little bit that they take away from one role, they just feel like, well, you know, let's put it back on the nursing and we'll make the nurses do it kind of situation. So as you can tell, as you've already noticed, my background is nursing. I'm not a physician or anything along those lines. But I was like, all right, my true love has always still been cardiac. I still enjoy cardiac very much so. And what better way to get truly hands-on with cardiac than going to the cardiac cath lab. So there's a position open at the hospital that I worked at, and then I was able to, thankfully enough, have a good conversation with the director there and make the transfer from medical ICU into the cardiac cath lab. So when, let's let's just explain what 
cardiac cath, getting a cardiac cath is. Your um, super healthy people are not coming into cardiac cath for like a yearly checkup. Explain what cardiac cath no, is. No, no, you're, you're referred to the cardiac cath lab pretty much as one of my physicians that I worked with that I, I respect extremely. He, they called it the table of truth. You're, you're sent to there usually, say you reported to the hospital and you had chest pain and they do a blood draw on you and you have a cardiac marker that shows that it might be a little bit elevated that only comes from your heart muscle whenever there is maybe some damage to your heart muscle. If that's elevated a little bit, then they may say, all right, we're going to send you down to the cath lab and we're going to take a look at your coronary arteries and make sure you don't have a problem there. Um, if you're more of an outpatient kind of thing, maybe it's that you've had these ongoing symptoms of some sort that whether you have some chest pain or chest tightness or something while you're at activity, it goes away. Um, you get back up, you do the same activity. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Neighbors are a little feisty yeah. around here. Yeah, getting a good game of bags going on. Um, the, the classic chest pain, angina chest pain uh, symptoms is what will typically get you to a stress test and then potentially to the cardiac cath lab. And when you do the cath procedure, you go in through, you go in through the femoral artery, correct? Well, that was always the gold standard for years and years. It was always the femoral artery was the where you went in at. You'd patient be on the table. They numb up the groin area with some uh, subcutaneous injection of lidocaine, and then take a needle, poke into the. Uh, femoral artery and then a sheath or a large IV for lack of better terms is inserted there and then that's where you run your catheters in and out of. Now as things move along they have found that going through the right radial artery is excuse me, typically a better approach because the bleeding risk is substantially lower to go through the right radial artery so a lot of the new fellows that are coming out of training have all been primarily trained to come in and do everything from your right radial artery and run catheters from that point of insertion to your heart to take a look at the coronary arteries of your heart. Now, some of the procedures that you do, let's talk about stents, moving, you got you guys remove blockages. Let's go in depth because you've sent me some pretty cool videos that I'm not going to lie. I'm looking at it going, how in the world do you guys do your job in something that small mm -hmm. and that delicate without causing problems? Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, with any medical procedure, there's always going to be risks. Um, thankfully enough, there is a lot of things that can be done that, you know, for lack of better words, that you can still kind of get away with, if you will. You know, it's the, the human body is slightly forgiving, but you still have to respect what you're working in. Um, so your heart has basically two main quote-unquote takeoffs for your coronary arteries. You have your right coronary artery, and then you also have your left main, which then branches into your left anterior descending artery, and then your circumflex artery, to which those two main vessels give rise to other branch vessels as well, too. Um, when you do an EKG on a patient and they're having a heart attack and one of those arteries are occluded, then 
that's what is represented on an EKG. You have different um, electrical uh, disturbances that happen uh, that represent where that blockage might be at. So in the instance of, say, a patient is having what they call an QMI, or as we would, the layman's terms of heart attack, um, one of those main branches has been occluded, whether it be by a clot, uh, most often by a clot, but it could be from the patient had a lesion in their artery, became unstable, and again, for lack of better words, I don't mean to sound graphic here, but those lesions kind of almost like erupt or sounds graphic, but kind of pops like a zit, if you will, and it spills its contents into the artery. The platelets and everything start getting mad, they get angry, and they start to form a clot. And whenever that happens, that's whenever that artery becomes completely occluded. Um, from there then, hopefully the patient is able to get some aspirin on board, gets to the hospital, do the EKG. Yes, you're having an QDMI, you need to go to the cardiac cath lab. Then you run these catheters up there and you inject contrast and you take a live x-ray during that and whenever you do that you take multiple different views because the x-ray is only a two-dimensional view of a three-dimensional object so you take multiple different views to try and appreciate what you're seeing or what is missing or what's there um, from that point then you may switch out for a different catheter that's a little bit heavier catheter um, and you run a wire that is 14 one thousandths of an inch, so basically about like your hair, um, down the patient's artery, hopefully through that blockage, and then you take balloons and stents that are mounted on that wire, inflate the balloon, hopefully blood flow re uh, restores, and then the stent that you put in is mounted on a balloon, go in, you inflate that balloon with the stent on it where the lesion was at, thereby smashing that plaque and such in place and restoring blood flow to that vessel. So if a catheter is the size of, of a hair. No, the wire. I'm sorry, the, the wire is the size yeah. of a hair. How big is a balloon? We're not talking so, about like a birthday balloon. No, no, no. I mean, your coronary arteries, you're talking anywhere from the smallest balloons on the market that you might use as a 1.2 millimeter balloon um, all the way up to a five millimeter balloon for your coronary arteries. There are situations where patients do have larger than five millimeter coronary uh, arteries, but those are some very unique circumstances. Typically, the majority of everyone that's walking around here is gonna have coronary arteries that would be anywhere from a millimeter to five millimeters. You know, and talking about this equipment, so let's fast forward to today. Moving from cardiac cath lab, you now work for Philips mm -hmm. and sell the equipment mm -hmm. that's used for these procedures and you are basically the expert going in to mm. cardiac cath to say hey listen here's here's this equipment here's how you use it and you're like hands-on in these procedures helping these physicians basically save people's lives so yeah i mean it's i work with the physicians hand in hand um now, granted, the, the physicians go through their own fellowship training, and they are trained by other physicians as well to, to do all of the cardiac cath procedures. Um, being with my role that I have now, I mean, technically I am in medical device sales now as it is. However, I spent eight years in the cardiac cath lab getting the, the ex, 
you know, expertise or knowledge that I have now to be able to help guide physicians because even new fellows, whenever they come out, they're still a little bit green sometimes. And some guys, they don't even know what they don't know. Um, but I get the privilege to be able to help um, those physicians as well because I take a lot of pride in being able to help these guys and help the patients as well too. Um, and, you know, we say that a lot. You know, you don't, people don't know what they don't know. Just like when we started our gym and this goes for any field you don't know what you don't know and as you start to get your education and get more experience you start to see a bigger picture mm -hmm. of how you want things to be done how you want your own career to go how you want for you the medical field to go for us how we want the fitness field to go and we help to broaden the horizons of basically open the minds of other people like hey think about it this way Right. So you have people that come in that you're working with saying, hey, we're going to take this equipment. We're going to use it like this. Check this out. Nope, you can't go that way. Go this way instead. Yep. And it's a continuous educational process that basically helps make everyone within our f respective fields better. Oh, absolutely. And that's what, I mean, there's there's a fine line there as well, too, that... Um, you know, working with physicians and such like that, there's a there's a level of trust that has to be built there. Those physicians have to know that you're there to be there for the patient and for the betterment of their case to make that thing go well. Not that you're just there to try and sell a piece of equipment or something like that. They want to know that you're invested in them and then you're invested in the case and you're invested in the patient. So once you're able to, to develop that level of trust, then that's whenever things typically tend to grow exponentially for you as well too. Well, and speaking of heart things, I think part of what's made you so invested in cardiac is the fact that you have a right branch bundle block incomplete. Yeah, I had a incomplete right branch or bundle branch block um, which really according to my primary care physician was like basically the only time that you may have to worry about that is if you go scuba diving. Um, I also, back whenever I was working in the cath lab, and still I was working out, and this has nothing to do with working out, so don't take it to that, to that, but working out all the time, on call, all that kind of stuff, drinking lots and lots of caffeine and such like that, I was having spells of SVT, supraventricular tachycardia. So I would all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, just boom, all of a sudden I'd feel my heart just pounding out of my chest. I mean, just 150 beats a minute, if not more, probably 180. And the only thing you can do on something like that is just wait for it to break. You go to the hospital or you do vagal maneuvers like bear down like you're trying to, you know, take a crap or something like that. Hold your breath, bear down, and it'll break. And that's thankfully enough what I was able to do. Um, since then, I've been able to know what to do and not to do. But, yes, um, I don't know why from the early on, the get-go, cardiac intrigued me, but it did. And that's what I was always drawn to was cardiac. So, no, you're good at what you do, and I want to tie it into what we do. Sure. So, we're, as you know, health, wellness, longevity, and one of the things that has really bothered me for a long time is the fact that heart disease is the number one cause of death in the United States. If you were to sit and watch TV, if you were to go, I don't know, anywhere, nobody's 
talking about the fact that heart disease is the number one killer in the United States. We, if you watch TV, you have medications for every flipping thing you could possibly have. Does your big toe hurt? Right. We have a pill for that. <laughs> oh my gosh, you have chronic blah, blah, blah. We have a pill for that. But not anywhere do they say, here are things, with the exception of medication, the, the education on just basic exercise, basic nutrition to help with heart disease. Yeah, yeah. Is not there. Yep, I agree 100%. There are people in this world that have no idea what protein, carbs, and fats are. I, I blame it 100% on the nutrition education in this world that basically has us eating foods loaded full of chemicals. Mm -hmm. Very processed foods that come in boxes. Speaking of processed foods, I think here comes the ice cream truck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, we can all jam out to the... We're to jamming the, out to the, to the, the, the ice, ice cream, cream truck, right? So when it comes to heart disease, we have the lifestyle factors that nobody's educating people on, but we also have genetic factors as well. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the people that you see, do you know whether they're, whether it's genetic, whether it's lifestyle? Can you tell by the people that come in? Uh, I mean, it's a there's definitely a, a, a mixed bag, that's for sure. Um, I mean, usually you kind of get to know the patient just a little bit whenever they come in because you talk to them just a little bit. Um, and one of the questions that you ask amongst many is, is there coronary artery disease or heart disease in your family? If they say yes, then you automatically know then that there is a genetic predisposition that this patient has potential coronary artery, uh, coronary artery disease. Um, from that, then there's also patients that come in that, you know, all they have to do is say two words and you know that they're heavy smokers. I mean, it sounds like their voice boxes or that, you know, their voice just sounds completely burnt because they've smoked two packs of cigarettes a day for 30 years or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, there's people that literally do everything right, everything that they should. They run, they work out, they try and eat a healthy diet. But unfortunately, at the end of the day, the genetic factor is something that you still a lot of times just can't quote unquote outrun. Um, you could unfortunately enhance your risk if you wanted to, if you had a genetic predisposition by smoking, by eating a diet that's full of fried foods, sugars, uh, you don't take care of yourself at all, you don't watch your blood pressure. I mean, if you do all those things and have a genetic predisposition, like I can almost guarantee you that before you take a single angiogram in the cath lab, that this patient's going to have three vessel disease is probably going to need to have open heart surgery done. That's a bad day. Yeah. So the person who is not genetically predispositioned, mm -hmm. let's say you have your average show yep. who is sedentary, does nothing extra, doesn't walk, none of the, none of the, let alone run. Let's just say walking, standing, so on and so forth. Just yeah. basic stuff. Eats like crap, consumes alcohol, sodas, low protein diet, high processed carbohydrates, so on and so forth. If that person comes into you, has all of the procedures done, is there a chance that that person comes back to you? Have you seen 
something like that happen where let's say average Joe comes in, super unhealthy dude, doctor says, hey, listen, your case can be fixed with diet and exercise. Go take care of yourself. How many people, how many times have you seen average Joe come back? Have you seen recurring patients? Oh yeah, I've absolutely seen recurring patients because, and even, I mean, it's always recommended that, you know, take care of yourself, eat healthy, quit eating the crap. You need to exercise more. You need to lose weight. All those things. All the cardiologists that I ever work with are always making those are always telling patients that. Um, but even these patients that say they come in, they have a coronary angiogram or cardiac cath done and everything, everything looks clean, quote unquote. So all the big arteries of the heart that could have a balloon and a stent, to take care of a reperfusion of that artery uh, to relieve symptoms. Um, say those big arteries are all clean. I, forgive me, I forget what the percentage is off the top of my head. I used to have it memorized and I just don't anymore. Um, the circulation of the heart itself, of the myocardium, it is an extremely large percentage that the teeny tiny vessels so not quite capillaries a little bit larger than capillaries all the way down to capillaries actually make up the majority of the circulation of blood flow to the myocardium itself so where i'm going with this is that there are patients that they may say you know what your large arteries are fine but your teeny tiny arteries might be the problem and there's really no fix for those teeny tiny arteries that get tore up due to a poor diet, due to genetic predisposition, due to smoking, due to all these things that the majority of which could, could hopefully be um, corrected. Well, I don't even want to go as far as to say corrected. Um, improved. Improved um, by just cleaning up their diet. Because um, the thing is with, sorry, I feel like I'm kind of just like, getting on the slippery slope here, but it's coronary artery disease. Once it starts, especially in the macro circulation, the large vessels of the heart that, that stents can be put in, it's a chronic disease. Right. Once it starts, there's really no true stop to it. It's something that you have for the rest of your life. The best thing that you can do is to take care of yourself to try and keep more plaques and lesions from forming in your large vessels. But there's probably a large, or there's probably a good chance that if you have disease in your large arteries, that you also have disease in the teeny tiny arteries. And those are the areas there that if you have problems, that the only thing you can do is diet and medication and exercise to hopefully help improve those teeny tiny arteries. When I think a lot of what people are not aware of is that the start of heart disease happens in your 20s and 30s. Like you actually start that process, especially if you're sedentary with a super horrible diet, starts in your 20s and 30s. Like this is not an old person problem. This is not something, yeah, granted, elderly people are showing up, but this is not just a the 65 and older problem. The this seeds is, are planted, yes. kind of sort of in the, the earlier years of your life. And you know, we're, we're so arrogant in our 20s and 30s thinking that none of, nothing like this will ever happen to us. I'm bulletproof. 
and then you start creeping into the into your 40s and then you crawl into your 50s and it's like it just gradually gets worse and worse and for those people that have the sedentary lifestyle the horrible nutrition the high alcohol consumption the high soda consumption the low hydration so on and so forth it happens far sooner than the people who are who are aware of it for a longer period of time well and we thankfully enough we when we're we have our youth we have a lot of things on our sides in our youth in our 20s and such like that that while we're not fully mentally matured and we're out destroying ourselves not realizing it at least some of us you know arrogant americans are thankfully enough we still have a lot of cardioprotective hormones and stuff like that that we're able to kind of get by with doing some stupid things and it's not necessarily going to be at a large detriment to us later. Now, that's not saying that I'm saying go out and do heroin and cocaine or something stupid like that. But, however, if those habits literally become daily habits and they continue day in, day out, into your 30s, into your 40s, the oxidative stress that comes along with those said habits is what then begins to compound and causes you problems as time goes on. Yeah, because we're not talking about having cake on your birthday or some french fries off of right. your, your significant other's plate every now and then. We're talking about things that you do day in and day out on a regular basis that lead to obesity, yep. so on and so forth. Yep. When we talk about the heart, we can also go in the opposite direction. So here's, here's a question for you. There is such a thing as the runner's heart, mm -hmm. the athlete's heart, so on and so forth. So, for example, the, the heart is a muscle. It changes in size. It can grow. It can grow in thickness. It can grow in size. People who are, let's take long-distance runners, for example. You've been a marathon runner your entire life. How does your heart change from being a person who walks and maybe goes to the gym periodically to a person who now does marathon triathlons how does the heart change when it becomes when you become an endurance athlete i can kind of weigh in on it a little bit to sit here and say i'm the the absolute expert on that i'm not going to say that i am for sure but i mean what can happen over time is that as you as you said the heart is a muscle it can grow it but with the heart, you don't want the heart to grow too much because when the heart ex grows and increases in size or cardiomegaly, you know, enlarged heart, it'll get to a certain point to where it will grow. And then all of a sudden it just gets to a point to where it's like, I can't do this anymore. I can't grow anymore. I can't, I, I cannot, you know, uh, what's the word that I'm really looking for here? It's like, I, I can't make this work any longer and that's whenever heart failure sets in so i remember having a conversation with one of the electrophysiologists that i work with which in the cardiac cardiology world you have your interventional cardiologists who deal with the, the plumbing of the heart which is your coronary arteries and then you have your electrophysiologists that deal with the electrical side of your heart so any electrical disturbances you have and stuff like that 
than you would typically see an electrophysiologist. And I remember having a conversation with him at the scrub sink one day, and he was saying that the highest propensity of AFib that he sees among athletes is among rowers. And it has to do with the amount of endurance training that goes in to being a rower. They are extremely healthy, they're extremely fit, but the amount of stress that it puts on the heart to become that super elite rower, it also causes the left atrium to expand and enlarge a little bit as well too. And with that enlargement and expansion of the left atrium then comes along the burden of atrial fibrillation. So there is a fine line there of taking care of yourself and just flat out overdoing it and becoming this, you know, over the top endurance athlete to where you could actually have this enlarged cardiomyopathy heart that you wind up in a situation of basically you exercise becomes a poison and Mm -hmm. yeah and we've actually talked about that on previous podcasts and we discuss it with our clients a lot that there is there's a difference between training to be at an elite level and then training to be healthy like if you're getting paid millions of dollars and this is your job you inherit you accept that risk of competing and knowing that that's going to do more harm, potentially more harm to your body than good, right? Mm -hmm. If you're training for longevity to be the best possible person and feel the best that you can in your 60s, 70s, 80s, so on and so forth, running 60 miles a week is overkill. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't sit here and say that that would probably be the best thing for you. I mean, I've even had... I've even had patients that were long distance runners who I've had come in and were were having a heart attack because they had a they had a plaque that was in their coronary artery that while they were running it let loose. Yeah. Um, so and, it's you know, and you know the same thing can be said for for any form of exercise, not just endurance. You know, high intensity, overdoing it in the high intensity world. Um, any number of things that involve more than really three to five days worth of training a week. You know, at three to five days, one hour sessions, you're good for longevity. And a big part of that needs to be strength training. Mm-hmm. You know, we do, we do cardio for our VO2 max for our heart. You know, the better that is, the better our longevity, but the better our muscle mass the better our longevity. Yep. Right? With the muscle being a heart, or I'm sorry, with the heart being a muscle, muscle. hang on. (laughs) That was way backwards. Right. With the heart being a muscle, is there, in your expertise, a perfect amount, an ideal amount, that people need to be doing? I mean, I can't really, uh, honestly, I wish I could... I could say that, yes, this is how much you need to be doing every single day. Um, I mean, I just know that as you age, um, like your heart rate max, you know, is, was it 220 minus your age times 85% is, if I'm not mistaken, is supposed to be your 
heart rate max. And then below that, then you have like different zones that you would want to try and work into to be, you know, kind of a, you've probably seen the boards maybe at gyms and stuff like that, mm-hmm. like fat burn zones. And this is your heart rate max zone. And this is this zone and stuff like that. Um, being said, I am not an exercise science major. Um, being able to weigh in on how much time you need to spend with your heart rate at these certain levels and stuff like that, I can't really say for certain. Um, just getting up and being active, you know, for 30 minutes a day, doing something, you know, getting up and walking, weight training, something like that every day is at least something that you can do to at least modify your risk factors to make sure that you're keeping cardiovascular disease at bay, hopefully. And you know, there's a new study that's come out. They've, if you pay attention to studies, you have to pay attention to the number of people in the study, the health of the individuals studied, the number of people. There's a big, a big thing a big range of things that you should take into account when looking at studies, right? You shouldn't just take them as, as they are. But the new one is that the ideal number of steps, 8,200 steps a day, to lower your heart disease risk by, I believe it's 30%. So just something as small as walking. Mm-hmm. And... It's funny, whenever I tell people to walk, the people that that I'm around are usually, a lot of them are very intense people. So when I'm like, hey, I just want you to go out for a walk. I remember I had one of my clients look at me and say, hey, I went out for a walk the other day and that was so helpful. You know, I was walking um, a 13 minute mile. I was like, that's not a walk. (laughs) That's, that's, that's running. Right. (laughs) You're running at 13 minutes a mile. You're running. I mean, I think the fastest mile I've walked is like 15 and a half. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, that's, for me, that's trucking. I'm a short girl. Yeah. I mean, for you, you could probably get a little bit faster than that since you're a foot taller than me. Right. Um, but I mean, when, when we're talking about walking, it doesn't even have to be that brisk. No. But it needs to be walking throughout the day, 8,000, at least 8,200 steps a day. Yeah. I mean, just for instance, today, I, I got up this morning and I went and ran a mile and then we've walked around quite a bit today, walked to the walked at the beach and all that other kind of stuff. And I've got 8,100 steps in so far. And that's including running a mile. So, I mean, for people that say that it's like, oh, well, I get up and walk. It's like, just to give you an idea, you know, running a mile plus just, you know, walking different things throughout the day and stuff. Like I said, I'm, I'm sitting at 8,119 right now. Yeah. Um, hang on, I can tell you what I'm at. Well, I went walking. I actually went walking this morning. Mom and I walked three miles. I'm at 13,626. You need to step up your game. I'm getting screwed here. That's what happens when you have long legs. You don't take so many steps. Yeah, right? Listen, if you were short <laughs> like me, short people rule the world. Yeah, exactly. You got like four steps in my one. <laughs> Makes my heart better than yours. Yeah. yeah. So... If people were just more aware, you know, park further away at the grocery store, Mm -hmm. take the steps, 
when you get home from work, instead of coming home and sitting on the couch, unless it's, you know, midnight, depending on what your job is, go for a walk. Yeah. I mean, walking at least a mile helps. I mean, if you have a... If you have a if you have a sedentary job that requires you to be at a desk and you're going to Starbucks in the morning and you're getting a caramel macchiato or something like that that's literally got a thousand calories in it and 500 grams of sugar or something along those lines or whatever I mean don't get me wrong I love my espresso from Starbucks but I mean be cognizant of it, the of what you're putting in your body and if you have no idea what to do or where to start I mean that's literally our job yeah and that's really what we've been working on big time is we want the people that have no idea what they're doing they have no idea where to start they're intimidated as crap to walk into a gym because that is a very intimidating thing to do i mean i'm intimidated walking into a gym especially a globo gym yeah like you walk in you're like oh this is creepy yeah but we want the people that need to change their life in this magnitude so that I would much rather them come see me than come see you. Yeah, because once you make it to me, then, yeah. Hopefully we can give you good news. I mean, that's what I hope the best for whenever the doctor does all the the pictures and everything. It's like, good news, you know, the problem's not coming from your heart. Maybe it's coming from this or from that or what have you, but it's not your heart. And that's that's the best thing that you can hope for, but... Like I said, there's a lot of times whenever they roll in the door, you can just, when you do it long enough, you can just look at people and it's just like, this ain't going to be good. That's not going to be good. Andrew, it's been awesome talking to you. Well, thanks for having me. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. I think this is the first time you and I have talked this long and not gotten into a fight. (laughs) Like in our whole lives. Yeah, right? (laughs) It's amazing what happens when you get old. Right? So, here's a question for you. Because none of my coaches have known this off the top of their head. If people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? <laughs> Just me, Andrew Werner. Nothing, nothing special, nothing yeah, fancy. You're so boring. So, I know, right? Um, <laughs> I'm old. Yeah. Old. Facebook, well, uh, Instagram, stuff like that. But You're actually on Twitter, nothing. too, aren't you? I am on Twitter, but like I said, I just kind of get on there and kind of see what's happening. I don't really. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah, come track him down. Yeah, right. So, thank you. No worries. I'll talk to you soon. Guys, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ferrum Athletic Company podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a review, share it with your family and friends, share it on your social media platforms. Our mission is to build better humans through the education of health and movement. If this resonates with you, please shoot us an email at forged at ferrumathleticco.com. Follow us on social media, Facebook or Instagram at ferrumathleticco. And we will see you all soon. Thank you for helping us to build better humans.